The Gospel of John builds a case. And at first glance, it may seem like the case that John is building up to is to prove to you and me who Jesus of Nazareth is. But that's not true. That's a secondary case. The primary case that John is building up to is that those who would not believe have no excuse. He builds up a case in much the same way it would have happened at that time in history to build up a reality that is not based on one witness, nor is it based on one claim, nor is it based on a single action, nor is it even based on two or three witnesses. It goes beyond the legal requirement that Christ is who he is, does what he does, not because he is simply, as Nicodemus thought, a man sent from God, or just a human Messiah, as the woman from Sychar thought, or a good man, or a decent teacher, or a moral man, or all the other lies that history has made up. Nor is he just God, and I say that carefully. He was not an appearance of a man. He was truly man, and truly God. And the way that he came, and the actions that he did, the words that he spoke, the witnesses that were sent were more than enough for everybody to have no excuse. The Gospel of John is building a case against the skeptic person. The person who will come up and see Jesus do wondrous miracles and still dismiss him as savior or deity, but say, well, you're obviously sent from God. No, Nicodemus, that's not allowed. It is common in our culture to speak of Jesus as a good man or a good teacher or a fine moral person, but he's not God. The reality is, as C.S. Lewis once said, he's either a liar, most of you know this quote, or he's a lunatic, or he is the Lord he claims to be. There isn't another option. And it's not another option just because his works make this manifest. It's not just one set of witnesses. John is building this case up to say, look, God even approached humankind, the nation of Israel on their level by sending one witness, John the Baptist, as one of them. But even Jesus says, look, I'm not even appealing to human witnesses at all. I know who witnesses for me. You all heard his voice at my baptism. The father speaking from heaven is witness to Christ. The works that Christ does witness to Christ. His own words, the scriptures themselves from Moses onwards, witness to Christ. John is building a case, not just that you and I may believe and live, but that those who will not believe, no matter how many witnesses are brought forth, will not live, and they will not do so without excuse. It is easy to preach a gospel that does not have the threat of judgment behind it. But that is an impotent gospel. What are we saved from if there is no risk and there is no condemnation for those who do not trust in the Lord Jesus Christ? It smashes down any hope of the gospel, doesn't it? And yet people think that it is being kind to not address the realities of hell or the judgments there to come. But the reality is Christ expresses to him all judgments been handed to him. So have all those who will be saved. 
This is what John chapter 5 and 6 brings out. All of this depends on Christ, and so we must get him right. And that is the great tragedy, even of our culture, where we once even culturally understood who Christ was. Now, we have no idea. We don't even know enough about him to reject him with full mind. We just assume he's like one of us. This becomes a problem to us. Because all judgment and all salvation and all the people who will call on his name for salvation have been given to Christ. And so we cannot get his personhood wrong. This is why we do not have four gospels about the personhood of Paul or of Peter. We have four gospels about the personhood of Christ. If we get him wrong, everything else falls by the wayside. For everything depends on him. The Old Testament... The entire focus of it was to look forward to him. The rest of the New Testament, the entire focus was to look back on him and the ramifications of what he has done in the world. The Gospels at the very center were focused on his life and ministry, message, commands, and everything else. Yes, indeed, all the revelation that has come from the Father is about Christ. From the very first opening verses of the Bible to the very close as we anticipate his return. And here, as we get to one of the transition points of the Gospel of John, I want you to stand in honor of God and his word. John chapter 5, verses 30 through 47. No matter that your bulletin says to verse 46, I don't know what I was thinking. John chapter 30, so when we get to 46, don't think we're out of here just yet. John chapter 5, verses 30 through 47. I can do, this is Jesus speaking, I can do nothing on my own as I hear I judge, and my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. You sent to John, he speaks to the people, and he has borne witness to the truth, not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved." He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me, he he has himself bore witness about me. His voice you have never heard, and his form you have never seen. And you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures, because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hopes. For if you had believed Moses, you would have believed me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Our Father, we thank you for this 
absolutely gutting message that Christ gives to those who would not believe. We pray, Father, that we would not find a one of us in that crowd, but that we'd be those who believe upon hearing the word of Christ and live. We pray, Father, that these things are made alive in our hearts, that we do not seek to establish our own righteousness or our own lives or our own claims to life, meaning, purpose, value, or whatever the case, that we plead only Christ before the throne of grace. We thank you that he has brought us to life anew and called us from the deep dark and pulled us from the flames to set our feet upon a rock that cannot disappoint. We thank you for Christ. It's in his name we pray these things. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. What a rough message. It is common to think that when Jesus speaks of the reality that he does nothing of his own will, but he only does the will of the Father who sent him, to think that there's some disagreement between the members of the Trinity. There is not. It is the role of the Son to do the will of the Father. It does not mean the Son has a different will. It means that he does these things because it is the will of his Father. I want to cover that on the front end because a lot of people get that a little bit mixed up. So we're going to address it here in the first verses. Let's get into it. It's a long section. Um, That shouldn't change how long we're in it, but that will change the fact that we need to get in it right now. When Christ comes, he addresses to them the reality that all authority has been given to him for judgment. That's not a common way we talk about Jesus. Jesus is usually portrayed as a doe-eyed, kind-hearted, long-haired, well... If you come to church history, you know, French king from the 8th century. But the reality of who Christ is, is much more dreadful than most people think. He spoke on hell more than he spoke on any other topic. Most people think he doesn't even believe in hell in our culture. He spoke of the judgment of God much more than he spoke of salvation. Why? Because it is the realities of the outcome of not trusting in him that there is quite a lot of threat on the other side. He addresses the coming judgment into the world. The fact that he will be the one sitting in judgment seat for these things. The fact that those who have called on his name for salvation will truly survive that day is not missed on him, but it's not one of his main topics. He speaks of the reality of those who would set their mind against the persecution of those who would follow him. And he reminds them, look, don't don't fear those who can harm the body. What does he say to them? Instead, fear him who can destroy both body and soul in hell. Do not miss the reality that Christ himself is not who we think he is. Who we think he is is much lower than he actually is. He is God. And God became man We cannot fully conceive of what that is like. How is it that God in man can grow in wisdom and stature? I have studied theology for decades. I cannot answer that question fully. How is it that God incarnate grows in wisdom and in stature? How is it that he learns from the scriptures? The very scriptures he inspired. How is it that that happens? I don't know. 
What I do know is that whatever conclusions I have about Jesus of Nazareth, the reality is much higher than my puny little mind can come up with. The glories of Christ are far higher than what any of us has an idea of. For we have not seen him face to face and in full glory yet. And so when we run into different aspects about him, both in his judgment and in his condemnation, it tends to offset us a little bit. Because we come from a culture that expects nice Jesus, except for when he overturns the money changers' tables. And we think that that's the only time he was upset at anybody. But the reality is, that as you go through the Gospels, you see the, real, the, the, the expression that he says with regards to judgment being that unless somebody comes and believes in him whom God has sent, you will not survive. John doesn't put it in any guessing way. You may believe and live. What is the antithetical statement, parallel? If you do not believe, you will die. And who will be the one in exacting that judgment? As we learned last time, here in the context, it will be Jesus himself. Why does he do this? Why does he say this? And he discussed the resurrection from the dead, one of the great promises of life eternal to the Christian. And he says, why? I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. There is no disagreement between the Father and the Son. There's no hierarchy. There's no rivalry. There's perfect fellowship with distinction. That's an incredible reality of the Christian walk. We have reflections of that, if you will, in Christian fellowship. While we are different and there's distinctions between us, we have a singular goal. There's a certain amount of communion that comes from that, but nothing on the level of the Trinity. The fact that the Father and the Son have the exact same intention and the exact same outcome of will is a remarkable thing. The role of the Son to bear witness of himself and the role of the Father to bear witness to the Son and the role of the Son to submit to the will of the Father is without exception and with all distinction is without disagreement. John includes this teaching of Christ because as Christ is addressing with them, this group of people that are standing by are without excuse due to the sheer number of witnesses that God has sent them. Watch this in verse 31. He says, if I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. By very definition, you cannot bear witness to yourself. It doesn't work like that. If you're going to say, uh, you know, it's, it's kind of like this, this old joke that there's nobody in prison who says, you know, I got here because uh, I'm guilty. The, the, the vast majority of people that go to prison claim their innocence. Our witness about ourselves is at, at best tainted, at worst the opposite in order of self-preservation. And what Christ is saying is, I'm not here bearing witness about myself. Christ saying that he's the Messiah, the king of the universe, the God who created all things, the very word who was with God and was God and is God, is not sufficient. Anybody can show up and say such things. Anybody can show up and say such things. In fact, there have been many false messiahs. And so what Jesus is saying is, you know very well that that's not an acceptable way to imbue such authority into a singular person. He says, no, 
If my witness is only about myself and only comes from myself, it's not sufficient. There's another, capital A. There's another who bears witness about me. And I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. He bases his claim for messiahship on the testimony of the Father. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that his testimony he bears about me is true. But the reality is, a lot of people standing in the crowd that day weren't there at his baptism to hear that. And so what does Jesus say? The Father had sent somebody else that you would listen to, a human, one of you, John the Baptist. He says, you all very well know that you sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man. What he is saying is, my testimony doesn't have to depend on a singular person or another human. My testimony depends on the everlasting God, his word, my works, etc. But he says, for the sake that these people could actually hear and interact with the truth of the gospel, a man was sent. John. He says, my testimony doesn't come from man, but I say these things that you may be saved. He was a burning and a shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. That is clue number one. Excitedness about the reality of the gospel of Christ being preached, and then it dying away. Because the ramifications for the hearers is that they must repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And what does the fallen heart want? The fallen heart does not want to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. The fallen heart wants to rely on itself. Sure, I may have these sins if I am a humble such person, but I can, I can master them. I can get past them. I can get over them. I can, I can solve that problem. And God will forgive me because he's a nice God, but I've solved my problems from here on out. And a lot of people think salvation kind of works that way. What Christ is saying is that's not how salvation works at all. Even the interaction with just on the human level is just so that they could hear it, but it does not depend on that. I thank God that the truth of the gospel does not depend on how good you and I are. Don't you? Have you ever known a church leader that's worthy of that kind of hope? I hope not. Every one of them will fail. Every Christian will falter. We do this, we understand this, so that we walk humbly with our God. And we understand that the, the answer does not lie in me or you or anyone else. The answer lies in Christ alone. The aspect of this is reminding that even with someone like John the Baptist, who even Jesus said, there is no one better born among women than John the Baptist. As far as for humans go, he's the top. Most successful ministry ever. Met with an end of martyrdom. That should realign our aspects. But then he includes the reality that the person who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than John the Baptist. How can that be? What is it that makes us greater upon salvation? It is not just that our sins have been wiped away. It is much more than this. It is that everything on our account is now Jesus' righteousness. Our sins 
and filthy righteousnesses given to him, his righteousness given to us. And therefore we live while he died in our place. He points out to them their main weakness. You are focused on humans. You think that the answer to all things lies in mankind. This is not far off from our own culture. People judge whether or not they're sure about things by their own eyes and hands. And unless, just like Thomas, unless I see it with my own eyes, unless I touch his nail prints and put my hand into his side, I will never believe. And Jesus' answer is, yes, I know. You're putting your mind on what man can do for you. Man is impotent. He cannot even save himself. We're about to go into Isaiah chapters 40 through 48, where God does the same thing with idols that John does with humans. You put all of this hope in them, all of this worship, all of this dependence, and what? God says to the idol worshipers in Isaiah 43, you go to the woods, you grab a log, you chop it in half, One side you burn in the fire to warm yourself. The other one you carve into a god and you bow down and worship it. You think that it can save you. Is it 43, 44? It's one of those right in there. I know the text. I don't know the actual reference. If someone wants to find that, it itself. The same thing that the Pharisees were saying to Jesus on the cross. We'll address that when we get there. But what Jesus is saying is, that idol is not dying in your place. It's just not alive. What life can come from it? It has eyes, but it cannot see. It has ears, but cannot hear. It cannot make a sound in its throat, and yet you would put that kind of surety in it. One step up away from hell from that is dependence on man. You think because he has eyes that can see and ears that can hear in whatever measured minutiae, that he's worthy of some kind of trust. And he says, look, God sending John the Baptist was a condemnation of your perspective, not a raising of you up. God did not have to provide salvation for us. Let's start there. God, who was and is God from all eternity, created us from the dirt and promised us that on the day that we would eat of the wrong tree of the knowledge of good and evil, we would what? Die. It's the first thing the serpent says to Eve. No, you won't. You won't die. God knows in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be open. You will become like God, knowing good and evil. Was God lying? We didn't die, did we, on the day we ate of it? No, something died in our place. God's mercy to bring salvation into the world and to even bring up the gospel on that day that Adam and Eve fell is a remarkable testament to the reality we do not need to verify things in order for them to be true. God himself is true whether you or I were ever aware of him. This is why we we approach God on a basis of thankfulness that he has approached us 
first, that he has loved us first, that we may in turn love him and be thankful to him and approach him. But as Jesus is addressing this, he's saying the goal of this was not to provide you a human out. That was That was a lowering of the message so that you could hear it from John the Baptist. He says, but what was even your reaction to that? You only rejoiced in his lamp for a little while. Because when the ramifications of it came to you, he called you all to repentance. Turn from yourselves to God. Whether yourselves is marked by sin or supposed righteousness or any such thing. Turn from all of that and turn instead to God. And find life in his name. That was too much for some people, especially when he called them out on their sins specific. He was beheaded. He says, you all rejoice for a while in his light. Remember, John had already told us he wasn't the light. He came to bear witness about the light, the light being Christ. And so Jesus reminds these people, he says, the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. Verse 36. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish... The very works that I am doing bear witness about me that the Father sent me. At a later place in the Gospel of John, he addresses with the Pharisees that, look, even if you don't believe my words, at least believe my works. I mean, let's be honest. Nicodemus, while there is a great tragedy in the earlier part of his story, at least recognized the works that Jesus did were indicative of the fact that he came from God. Is that enough? No, that's only one witness. It's only one. But it certainly heads that direction. If you're not going to believe my words, at least believe my works. They are done in front of your eyes. They approach us on a level where perception is more possible. And look at it. Most people, even at the time, whether it was in Capernaum or Bethsaida, They were looking for Jesus to do more works, more wonders, more tricks, more signs. And what does Jesus answer to them? Eventually, he comes to the point and says, no, no more. This generation always seeks after a sign. You have my words. No more sign will be given. In fact, he says, only one more. One more sign, he says before he goes to the cross. The sign of Jonah. Man who went into the grave for three days rose again and went and preached life to foreign nations. What does Jesus say? You want the testimony of man, you had it, you rejected it. You want the testimony of my works, these do indeed bear witness about me, the very works of them, but they will come to an end as well. They will come to an end as well because they had a purpose for a while. He says, the very works that I am doing bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. He says, in the ultimate sense, the works are only there because of the will of the Father that the Son always does. And so they are still removed by one step away from the Father. So let's go straight to him. Verse 37. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard. His form you have never seen. You do not have his word abiding in you. That is rough language. You know what he's saying to them? 
He's saying, when a human witness was sent to you, you believed for a little while until the ramifications of repentance really came to call. Then you, then you paid attention to me because I was doing signs and wonders, but that can only take you so far. The appreciation of miracles passes away. Use them for tricks and for signs and for wonders. But the reality is, those things were meant to show you to the word of God. They were not meant to last forever. And so what is it that he says about the Father? He says, the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. But you would not have that. What happened at Jesus' baptism? This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Not one of us can expect to hear that from God in and of ourselves. That is for the son. And for the sake of the son's sacrifice and righteousness on our account, there is not a single Christian in all of history who will not hear that. You are my child in whom I am well pleased. There's only two things to hear at the end of life. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness, or welcome my son in whom I am well pleased. There's not a medium ground where it goes, well, you tried really hard and I guess you went to church. No. It is either Christ's perfection and righteousnesses or your best attempts. I'll give you a hint. Only one of those makes it through. And what Christ is saying here is the reality of the Father's words testifying about Christ is for those whom God is calling enough. God calling out from heaven and saying, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Do you, Christian, know that we serve as beloved children? And yet so many Christians serve the Lord out of fearful rejection. If that describes you today, a word of encouragement. If you are in Christ, there is nothing in heaven or on earth that can ever take you from Christ, including your free will. Nothing. Your hope is not centered on your faithfulness. It is centered on Christ's faithfulness. It is not centered on your work. It is on his work. Not your righteousness, but his. Not your good works, but his. Not your claims to earning beloved son status, but the fact that you have been adopted as joint heirs with the son. You already have the father as your father. You are already a beloved child. This is why Ephesians chapter 5 verse 1 does not tell us to imitate God as fearful slaves that today are owned by the father and could tomorrow be sold to the next owner. No. Imitate the Greek word is mimic, by the way. Imitate God, therefore, as beloved children. Those who are loved. Those who cannot not be loved. Those who will certainly see life. All dependent on the word of the Father. And this is what Jesus says here. He says, for those who are truly coming to salvation, it is not the word of man that we depend upon. 
It is not... It is not just the miracles of Christ, though they are miraculous and fantastic. One of the reasons why we shouldn't be surprised that those aren't the norm for the church, by the way. But that the word of the Father comes to us. It came to them and that testimony has been handed down. And verse 38, you do not have the Father's word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. It's kind of a catch-22 on both sides. It was really easy to hide as an unbeliever in Israel. Really easy. Because ethnically and culturally, you looked pretty much the exact same as those who were truly following the Lord in Jerusalem. You could do the same thing, celebrate the same feast, observe the same Sabbaths, and be as lost as any Gentile. What Christ is addressing is the reality that there are those who truly believed in the Lord not on the basis of what they wanted from it, but on the basis of God's promises. It is those who would receive Christ whom he sent. The one who would reveal the hearts of everybody. And so he points out to them in their very cultural existence, verse 39, he says, you, and he speaks to the whole crowd, he says, even on a cultural level, you search the scriptures Because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Yet another witness. All of revealed scripture. Here we have the Father speaking. The Holy Spirit speaking. Both of them lending witness to the person of Christ. His works and his words being born out of these things. And John the Baptist being a mere afterthought. As far as witnesses are concerned. And Jesus is saying, you are completely without excuse. You seem to go to the scriptures and say thus and so. And he says, the reality is you can't understand the scriptures if you're rejecting me. It's a horrible catch-22. Because the reality is you cannot use the scriptures to disprove Christ. Why? Because they were sent to testify about him. They were sent so that the world would anticipate his coming. They were sent so that the world might... Christ reminds them, he says, I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. But you are, let me paraphrase here, so pathetic that if somebody comes in his own name, you will glom onto them as as their false messiahship in an instant. Why? Because they approach you on the basis of what you want, not what you need. He says to them this reality, let me... Read it direct. I have come in my Father's name and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you'll receive him. You're going to go and follow any false leader that there is. Why? Because they give you what they want to give you and what you want. But that is unfulfilling, isn't it? In the ultimate sense, what can man provide for us that we actually have need of? Nothing that can't be taken away. Nothing that cannot be stripped away from us, even if it's freedom or life. The reality is, both of those things can be taken away at the changing of a regime. Those are not hopes that last. Those are hopes that disappoint. And what he is saying is, how quick are you all to follow somebody who is unworthy of such dependence? And then to hold Christ to a far higher standard than you would any other who's claiming to that. 
because they do not exact out of us what is necessary, repentance and a turning from ourselves. Humble yourselves. This is how one of the apostles said it in another way. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up. God lifts up the humble and he puts down the proud. In fact, Jesus, almost exasperated against this, he says, how could you believe? How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Christian, this applies to us the same way it applies to the unbelievers he's speaking to. We do not live for the glory that comes from man. And easy it is to receive the accolades from mankind. People are really easy to impress. But that glory that comes from man is not worth pursuit. What he's saying is the same thing. Do not pursue such glories. Those things will pass away. They're meaningless in a sense. And the reality is they'll actually pull you away from this desire to glorify God. Do not pursue glory that comes to you from humans. That's not how it's to work. You receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God. I want every moment of my life to be lived for the glory of God and yet my sin keeps coming up and insisting that my day be about me. Or in my more humble days, that my day be about my family. But in the ultimate sense, the glory that we ought to be pursuing at every moment is the glory of God on high. It is for his glory that he has saved us. It is for his glory that he has spoken to us. It is for his glory that we gather together. And then he brings on them perhaps one of the largest accusations that there is because they pride themselves on the law of Moses as the people of Israel. And he comes up to them and gives them both barrels in verse 45. Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you. Moses, on whom you have set all your hopes. If you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? The very thing that they trusted in. They said, look, we don't seek glory from one another. We really seek the glory that comes from the only God, right? And so look at how much we pay attention to God's law. Look at how much we pay attention to the writings of God. Look how much attention we pay to scriptures. And yet, Christ says, you still are focused on self and not the glory of God. Still focused on self to the point that the law is about you and what you can accomplish when the law is actually sent to bring you to an end of yourselves that you may turn instead to the mercy of God. How many of you in interacting with the law of God think that you can actually accomplish that thing? It exists not just in Leviticus and Exodus. It exists every single time God speaks anywhere in all of the scriptures. Love me with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind. Any takers? Any takers that we have done this in any unbroken sense for any amount of time? We are beggars outside of Christ. Clothed in nothing but rags. But in Christ, 
all the riches of God incarnate have come to us. Do not cross those lines, my friends. They cause pride in our walk, thinking that because this area of my life is better than their area in their life, I'm, however, a better Christian. There are no levels to heaven. I want to say it again and again and again until I'm blue in the face. There is not a hierarchy in heaven, either in the Godhead or in the saints of God. There's not a single person who has earned their way to the glories of God alone. All of us are under the cross. All of us are under the blood. All of us are there. Let us fellowship like that. Do not place people on pedestals and do not stand on their heads. Let us serve one another out of purified hearts that God may be glorified and not ourselves. Let us serve God no matter what it costs us. We just sang during communion that we partake in the bread and the blood of Christ. Why? That we may share in his sufferings until he comes again. Because the reality, my friends, is that the sufferings of Christ are yet unfulfilled. It is why the body of the church, the body of Christ itself, suffers because there's suffering yet to be done. That we may grow patient as the days grow long and that we may encourage one another with such words and such hopes. Do not set hopes on each other. Do not set hopes on man. Do not set hopes even on your ability to fulfill scripture and the commands of God. Set your hopes on the one that the Father testified about and sent. Set your hopes on Christ, his righteousness, and a hope that will never disappoint. Though you pass through sufferings immeasurable, there is nothing that can pull you from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. Let's thank him for that. Let's be encouraged as we walk in the light of it this week. Our Father, we do thank you for this. The promises of Christ enacted in the hearts of your people. May such hope make us patient. When sufferings come our way, Father, teach us to be thankful for them. A very hard task indeed. Teach us what it means to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. That whether we stay on in fellowship with people or are absent in our own deaths, we may bring glory to you on high and not to ourselves, our names, each other, or even our reputation. May Christ crucified be our hope of glory. We pray in his name and his name alone. Amen. Why don't we go ahead and stand as we continue to worship the Lord.